invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're continuing to make our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we've been in the middle section regarding our deliverance, and it's been working through uh, the articles of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. And today we're going to be considering what we mean when we confess to believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean for us? And so we find uh, that very same confession on the lips of the Apostle Peter here in Matthew 16. We'll begin reading at verse 13 and we'll read only through verse 20. I think I had uh, further verses in the bulletin, but we'll read only through verse 20. So Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So far from God's word, we're going to turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12. Lord's Day 12, there's two questions here, and I'll say more about this later, but it's very important to note the ordering of these questions. And again, I'll I'll kind of just tease it out there and um, address that later, but note again the ordering of of these two questions here regarding Christ and you as a Christian. So Lord's Day 12, question 31, I'll read the question, we'll respond together with the answer. Why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us for for the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. Question 32, but why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, even as Peter did, we confess, as the Catechism simply put it, that he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet, to be our um, high priest, and our eternal king, our prophet, our priest, and our king. But what does it mean that he is the Christ? What does it mean that he is anointed? Well, to be anointed by God, we see this throughout the Old Testament in a way that prepared the people of God for the Christ to come. Maybe I can ask the question of some of the children, you don't have to answer out loud, but who in the Old Testament was anointed? Who in the Old Testament was anointed? Well, throughout the Old Testament, of course, we had uh, priests who were anointed. The sons of Aaron, the Levites, were anointed when they took up their office as a priest. The king, at times, when he was uh, set upon the throne, would have been anointed. And also the, priest, uh, the prophets throughout the Old Testament also would at times be anointed. Think of Elijah and Elisha. And so throughout the Old Testament, we had these three offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And those offices did not speak merely to the person who had those offices, who um, was commissioned in them, but it spoke to the God who had authorized them. To partake of the, an office was, meant that you were authorized by God, that they stood under the sovereignty of God. So that when a prophet spoke, he spoke the words of God. When a priest uh, blessed the people, he blessed them from God. When the king issued decrees, it was as if God was ruling them. The prophet, the priest, and king were authorized by God. And more than that, they were also then appointed by God towards their specific task. Again, the priest would bless the people of God as he brought them near to God as he came into the Holy of Holies. The prophet would speak the very words of God. He was spoken of as the very mouthpiece of God. And the king represented God's rule over his people. And so the offices of prophet, priest, and king, all of them pointed to the work of God and to his grace at work among his people. The people of God did not earn and deserve prophets and priests and kings on their own. But they were given to the people within the context of God's covenant of grace, that that covenant might be administered. And the relationship of that covenant, I will be your God and you will be my people, that that relationship would be maintained. So the big point here is that the prophets, the priests, and the kings were not pointing to themselves, but they always pointed to the, their God and to his covenant of grace that he established with them. They served the bond of fellowship, the friendship that God had established with his people. So when his people wavered, a prophet would come and speak and call them back to repentance and faith. When God dwelt among them, that they might know that he was their king, he established the office of a king. Even David himself as one after his own heart. And the priest, all the more, would be one who bore the very names of God's people on his heart, symbolized by the stones on his ephod, by his heart. And he would, appro- he would approach God himself on behalf of his people. The prophet, the priest, and the king all served the friendship of the covenant of grace. Now all of those prophets, or rather all of those offices in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king, all of them then looked forward to one who would possess all of those offices in one person. Look to the single person who would be our prophet, priest, and our king. 
the whole Old Testament as the covenant was administered through these officers. The whole Old Covenant looked forward and anticipated the Christ. All that came before was anticipating that moment and very much the very moment that Peter makes this confession. You are the Christ, the one we've been waiting for, the one we've been looking for, the one who would truly fulfill these offices and bring about a new covenant that would not be broken. Because the prophets could speak, but they could not change the hearts of God's people. The priests could make atonement, but even the blood of bulls and goats couldn't really bring about the forgiveness of sins. And the kings, we see this great decline in their own righteousness and their willingness to work justice in the land, even as you read the book of Kings. Even Solomon himself begins that great decline. They looked for a greater king, a greater prophet, a greater priest to issue in a greater covenant. And so, with all of that history behind us, hundreds of years of God's dealing with his people, now Peter makes that incredible confession, that wonderful confession, you are the Christ, the one that we have been looking for, the one that we have been waiting for. The one who will usher in a new order. The one who will save God's people and deliver us to our ultimate end. To be with God and to dwell in his house forever and ever. You are the Christ. Those words should should ring in our ears with joy. Those words should ring in our ears with so much momentum behind them. As finally the Christ has come and he has been confessed. And so in the remaining time that we have, I want to think about three things here. First, Peter's confession. Secondly, the Christ. And then thirdly, the Christian. So the confession, the Christ, and the Christian. So first, Peter's confession. We haven't read the context here, but some of you may be familiar with the context in which Peter makes this confession. And that context is simply that at this point in Jesus' ministry... His identity has largely been hidden. In fact, you look at Jesus, he doesn't very much look like the Christ. From the appearance of things, he looks like one who might even be simply cursed of God, let alone the Christ. And so as people were following him because of the great miracles he worked and because of of the great wonders he performed, people began following him as they saw these outward signs of his majesty and his glory. But as Christ called them to take up their crosses and follow him, As Christ began to teach them that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, as Christ was one who had nowhere to lay his head, from the appearance of things, he did not seem to be the Christ that the people expected. They expected a mighty deliverer. They expected a great warrior who would come and liberate them from Roman oppression, who would establish them again in the land of Israel. In many ways, their expectations were earthly-minded. And as they set their minds upon earthly things, the kind of Christ that God sends is not one that they could understand and one that they would follow. And so at this point in Jesus' ministry, at this juncture, people are abandoning him. They're leaving him. This certainly can't be the Christ. Look at his weakness. Look at his poverty. Look at all that he is lacking. He certainly, he has no army behind him. He is not the Christ. And so again, people are forsaking him. Your heart is vast, put it this way. At this juncture, 
where many who had previously followed Jesus had forsaken him, it is the rock character and the steadfastness of Peter that is praised by Jesus. That when others wavered, he had remained true to his conviction. And you might ask the question, while everyone else abandoned Christ, what made Peter confess that he indeed was the Christ? Well, not a difficult uh, question to answer. Jesus gives us that very uh, answer to that. As he says to Peter, in praise of him, he says, Blessed are you, in verse 17, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. The point as is that those who had forsaken him were those who saw, in a sense, by flesh and blood. They, they simply walked by what they could see, and they didn't see a Christ, at least a Christ according to their expectations. But no, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It was the supernatural work of God from heaven opening up Peter's eyes to see that though the appearance of things said otherwise, Jesus indeed is, was, and is the Christ, the one upon, all, upon whom all the hopes of Israel, of all the hopes of the world is laid. He is the Christ who will come. And is this revelation, this, this revealing from God in heaven, that raised Peter's mind heavenward, that he might make then this confession. Earthly mindedness rejects the Christ that God has sent, but heavenly mindedness opens us up to recognize that he is indeed the Christ. It it remains true to this day. The glory of Christ is for the most part hidden even today, and earthly mindedness does not see his glory. Earthly mindedness looks for political advancements, earthly mindedness looks for economic prosperity, the earthly mindedness looks for influence and power in this world to say that that is the Christ and that's the salvation that he's bringing. But the true Christ is only seen by those of heavenly mindedness, which is to say of those who look not by sight, but by faith. The author of Hebrews reminds us that faith is the conviction of things not seen. And that is the predominant mode of living that God's church exists even today. As as he goes on to then say that Peter will be the rock upon which his church is built, his whole point is that the church is defined not by its its philanthropy in this world. Now, yes, we should be showing mercy to the world around us. but, But the essence of the church, what defines the church at its core is this very confession We confess that Jesus is the Christ, and that is at the heart of Christ's church, upon which Peter is is built upon Peter, who is the rock. We won't go into details on that point, not that Peter's office as the Roman Catholic Church teaches continues, but rather that it's his confession that continues. The same Christ whom Peter confessed is the Christ whom we confess as well. And we too, like Peter, are to be steadfast in that, not reverting to earthly mindedness, but rather heavenly mindedness that sees by faith the Christ who is today in heaven, there as we have confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism, there as our prophet, our priest, and our king. 
And so despite all outward appearances, Peter makes this confession. And despite all outward appearances, the church today, you and me, we make this same confession. The reference that, that, Paul, that Peter had towards the Christ is the same reference that we have. It's the same person. So we join our voices with Peter's. We join our confession with his. And that is what defines us as the church. And now as those who make that confession, we then live as those who belong to Christ, as we're going to see, as Christians. And therefore we go out into this world with the gospel and with mercy. We seek to live in all areas of life as his people. But first and foremost, the essence of the church is found in that confession. You are the Christ. And so that is the confession. Much more could be said about this. But secondly, we want to now think about then the Christ himself. So Peter confessed that you are the Christ. And as we said earlier, that confession has so much bag not baggage, it's a negative connotation, but so much weight behind it. So much content behind it. Because as we said, All the expectations, all the the longing for a deliverer, a savior, one who would crush the head of the serpent, one who would unleash the blessing of Abraham upon the nations, one who would be, one who would offer up that sacrifice once and for all, the one who would reign on the throne of David forever and ever, that one person, all of that history stands behind Peter's confession, you are the Christ. And so helpfully, the Reformed tradition has summarized this as, Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. And when we speak of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, we do not speak of him as having three separate offices, right? It's not that Christ possesses three offices, but that he possesses a threefold office. He is our prophet, priest, king. He is the one in whom all of those offices converge and come together. And as we pause and think about that, that it took not merely a king, not merely a prophet, not merely a priest, but it took a prophet, a priest, and a king to deliver you, reminds us of the greatness of, firstly, our sin and our misery, and secondly, of how great of deliverance that is one for us. In fact, this whole work here of his work as a prophet, priest, and king in the catechism, is summarized, or rather um, united in terms of our deliverance. You see that word repeated over and over again in the catechism. It says there that Christ has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards and keeps us in the deliverance he has won three times. Each office is related to our deliverance and it speaks to the magnitude and the greatness of that deliverance that it took a prophet, a priest, and a king. As prophet Christ reveals to us God's will in delivering us. That God does not merely deliver us in such a way that it's hidden. You know, this common notion that um, was found in the Roman Catholic Church, post-Vatican II, and also in C.S. Lewis, one that's completely wrong, is called anonymous Christianity. 
And this basic teaching was that whether people recognize it or not, whether they have very explicit content and and knowledge of it or not, if anybody has a, a spiritual inclination, again, whether they know it or not, it's actually towards the one true and living God, which then means you can have anonymous Christians. They don't know they're Christians. Now, it works well for the Roman Catholic Church, which in their Roman nature is very imperialistic. It means that more people than you think are actually, according to, in their eyes, under Rome's authority. Anonymous Christians belong to the Pope, according to the Roman Catholic Church. C.S. Lewis taught the same, as well as Karl Barth and others. It became kind of the modern thing. Remove all content, remove all dogmatic statements, and simply just have spirituality as the prerequisite for salvation, and you become a Christian. Anonymous Christianity, but that spits in the face of Christ, our prophet, who has revealed the counsel of God. Christ has spoken. Long ago, as the author of Hebrews tells us, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The final word. The most light shed upon his work of salvation that he was working long ago. To say that one could be a Christian without knowing anything. Then just, just a vague spirituality spits in the face of Christ, our prophet. No, Christ has revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God. There is content to our faith. Faith is not just an inclination, but there is knowledge component to our faith. We know it. We believe it. And we believe that it's true for us. We trust in what has been said to us. And so we confess along with Peter, you are the Christ, which means you are the prophet. We also confess him to be our high priest, as the catechism summarizes it. Who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body. Again, as we said earlier... For hundreds of years, God's people offered sacrifice after sacrifice. The old covenant was so bloody. Year after year, the day of atonement would come, goats would be sacrificed, blood would be sprinkled over and over and over again. And all of it pointed to something permanent, said something greater must come. And indeed, Christ, who is our high priest, does not offer up a goat or a lamb, but rather he lays down his own life and sheds his own blood as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, never to be repeated again. And therefore, if I can add one more point, it's why later in the Catechism we confess that, again, the the Mass of the Roman Catholic Church is a condemnable idolatry. It is a re-sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ whose blood was shed once for all. And so that now to confess that is to spit in the face of Christ, our only high priest, and his once for all sacrifice. But we confess that he is the Christ. Not only our chief prophet, but also our high priest who has delivered us by his, the sacrifice of his body once for all. And who today continually intercedes for us before the Father. And therefore, as our high priest, we do not pray towards saints, we do not pray towards anyone else, we do not even look to ourselves for deliverance, we look to him alone, who's at the right hand of God as our great high priest. To glorify Christ as our high priest is to pray to him alone, and to look for help and deliverance from him 
alone. You are the Christ, our chief prophet, our only high priest, and thirdly, our eternal king. Again, as, law, as uh, throughout the old covenant, kings would come and kings would die and next king would come to the throne. A succession of kings over and over and over again. And just like the sacrifice repeated over and over again, so too the office of the king looked forward to one who would sit on the throne never to die, but to reign forever and ever, whose reign would be eternal, whose reign would last forever and ever. And again, all of that converges in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, our eternal king. One who has conquered sin and death and who holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades, never to die again, but has authority over it. And therefore, his people who live under his reign can say, O death, where is your sting? Christ has given us the victory over even death as the conquering king, our eternal king, who governs us today, who is active today, just as he intercedes for us right now and forevermore, so too he governs us by his word, that's why we, we are centered around this word, and by his spirit. And those aren't to be separated. Mysticism says just the spirit. Rationalism says just the word. We confess that Christ governs us by his word and his spirit. His spirit opening up our eyes to see what his word says to us and enabling us and empowering us then to walk in its ways. And he guards us and keeps us in the, in the deliverance he has won for us. Here is the perseverance of the saints, grounded in the omnipotent hand of our eternal king, whose grip cannot be loosened no matter how strong the gates of hell rage against it. Jesus Christ will hold fast his church through trial and temptation, through fires and difficulties, Christ will hold his church and he gives the great deliverance even in the end as he gives us a share in his resurrection life. And so that is the confession of Peter and that is the Christ, our, our only prophets, our only priests, our only king. And finally, we want to think then about the Christian. I know I'm a bit over time here, but the Christian. And I said earlier, it's important to note the ordering of these two questions. Because we can only begin to think about ourselves as Christian if we have first thought about Jesus as the Christ, who is for us. We can only begin to think about ourselves as a Christian when we have first realized that Christ is for us as our prophet, priest, and king. That is the foundation upon which the Christian life is then lived. Because this question will now speak to what then we are called to do. And our calling flows out of who Christ is for us. This is the very nature of a covenant of grace. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God delivers and then he calls us to obedience. And Christ has delivered us as our prophet, priest, and king. And now calls us as those who share in his anointing to live ourselves as prophet, priests, and kings in him. Behind the ordering of this Lord's Day is the basic truth of our union with Christ. That by faith we are united to Christ who is our prophet, priest, and king. And as such we share in his anointing. 
Wish we had more time to develop this point here. But when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he adds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what's really interesting about that phrase is that it actually comes from the prophet Hosea. You can read it in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And there in Hosea, the people of God corporately are referred to as, plural, the sons of the living God. That's what they will be called when God restores them back to himself. They will be called sons of the living God. And what's interesting here is that Peter, by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, he's saying that the corporate people of God are now summed up in Jesus who is the son of the living God. So that all then who are, who are united to the Son of the living God are themselves sons of the living God. In other words, what's implied in, in Peter's words here is that we share in Christ's anointing. By confessing that he is the Son of the living God, that we confess that we share in his anointing. That in the Son we are sons is the basic point. And so we share in Christ's anointing, supplied in Peter's own words. And so because by faith I am a member of Christ and I share in his anointing, as the catechism says, I am anointed as a prophet then to confess his name. We are called to go out and to confess the name of Christ before this world as prophets. As priests, we are to then present ourselves not To make atonement for our sins. Christ has done that for us. But to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks. Right? Paul says this in Romans 12. To offer up our lives as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving to God in Christ. Not only am I a prophet. Not only am I a priest. But also a king. To strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life. That we take up the sword of the spirit. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we put to death in a kingly office the sin that is in us and fight against the devil and all of his temptations. Think of the book of Ephesians and putting on the armor of God. And as I do all of this, as I wage war today as the church militant, so I look forward to being the church one day at rest. As the catechism wonderfully puts it, afterward, And that word is so precious to God's people. Today we fight. Today there is the good fight of faith to wage in the power of Christ and by his spirit. But afterward, to reign with Christ over all creation forever and ever. You see, our king gives us a share in his glory. That's why uh, Paul says in Colossians, and when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's the glory of the Son of God. And that is yours because you share in his anointing. So all that Christ has done for us as our prophet, priest, and king, we come to share in its blessing and in its benefit. We recognize that Christ then did not take that office to himself for himself, but he took it to himself as it was given to him by his Father and for the deliverance of you, his people. Loved by him. And therefore our lives then are to flow out of that union with Christ by faith as we trust in him and are members of his body and share in his anointing to confess his name, to present our lives as living sacrifices of thanks, 
to strive against the devil and sin in this life, and afterward to reign with him over all creation forever and ever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the Christ, your very Son, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Thank you that he has revealed your counsel and your will regarding our salvation and deliverance. Help us then to cherish that word, to learn that word, to know that word. Father, thank you that he is our priest who has offered up his life once and for all, that we might be forgiven. Help us then to rest in him and to offer up our lives in response with thankfulness. And Father, thank you that he is our king, one who has subdued our enemies, who governs us by his word and spirit, and guards and keeps us in the the deliverance that he has won for us. Father, as those who share in his anointing as kings, may we fight against our sin. And may we also have great expectation as you look forward to that afterward, to that time when we will reign with Christ over all creation forever and ever, to share in in his glory, a glory that is unfading, but a glory that is eternal, even as his kingdom is eternal. Father, may Christ be our life, and may we know our lives as found in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.